Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everybody. Uh, we've got a great one today, you know, for a change. And this time, this time, I really mean it. My guest is Michael Mann, Nobel Prize recipient for his work in climate science. And in light of what happened in Texas, he is a very timely guest, I would say. Actually, I uh, taped the bulk of this conversation before that event. See, I uh, actually had suspected the climate change was a real thing even before that happened in Texas. So I asked Michael to come back after Texas to explain the polar vortex, and you'll hear that part first. Michael is a great guest. This is his second time on the podcast, and uh, I know you'll find this uh, very helpful, actually, in your understanding of what he calls the New Climate War, which is the name of his new book. And it's basically about how a lot of Climate deniers have sort of just given up the ghost, finally, on denying climate change and have been engaging in some other tactics, including saying, well, you know, it's it's hopeless. Uh, we really can't do anything about it uh, at this point. So, yeah, <laughs> give up. Of course, uh, one of the sensational things that came out of this uh, Texas debacle was the uh, Ted Cruz fiasco. Um, now, what kind of irks me uh, about that is the extent to which that detracts from his part in the January 6th riot at the Capitol. Uh, Cruz was one of the leaders in the Senate of the attempt to stop the certification of the election on January 6th. And he did that along with uh, Josh Hawley and Ron Johnson and actually 10 other Republican senators and a majority, a large majority of House Republicans, and it was all a lie. And it led to the tragic events of that day. And crews should be held responsible. They should be held responsible. And that's far more serious than being a tone-deaf creep who goes to Cancun when his state is suffering a catastrophe and then lies about it and... Uh, then kind of hides behind his kids. That's bad. And uh, it says a whole lot about who he is as a person. But what he and those others did that helped bring about that violent insurrection, which was a threat to our very democracy, is exponentially more serious. I have said that there needs to be a full-scale ethics investigation into Cruz and Hawley and Ron Johnson and that includes interviews with their Senate staffs and members of their political teams uh, under penalty of perjury and access to their emails to see who they were communicating with on the way to this attempt to overturn our election. Now, as bad as Ted Cruz is, 
And, boy, that's bad. What the hell is with Ron Johnson? Now, I'm going to play something. Here he was on Tuesday in a Senate hearing about January 6th, pushing out a conspiracy theory, reading from an article in a a, a right-wing rag, The Federalist, that argues that agents provocateurs and fake Trump protesters, not actual Trump protesters, were behind the assault on the Capitol. Let's listen. Many of the marchers were families with small children. Many were elderly, overweight, or just plain tired or frail. Traits not typically attributed to the riot prone. Many wore pro-police shirts or carried pro-police black and blue flags. Although the crowd represented a broad cross-section of Americans, mostly working class by their appearance and manner of speech, some people stood out. A very few didn't share the jovial, friendly, earnest demeanor of the great majority. Some obviously didn't fit in. And he describes four different types of people, plainclothes militants, agents provocateurs, fake Trump protesters, and then disciplined, uniformed column of attackers. I think these are the people that uh, probably planned this. This is insane. Now, the Federalist, again, is a rag, right-wing rag, funded by a uh, Richard Uline, a Wisconsin billionaire whose family gave Ron Johnson $1.3 million toward defeating Russ Feingold in 2016. Uline has also given over $4 million to the Tea Party Patriots, one of the groups that organized the January 6th uh, rally turned insurrection. Ron Johnson is up for re-election this, this coming cycle. He hasn't said whether or not he's running. If he does, we have to beat him. As Rachel Maddow says, watch this space. But for the purposes of this podcast, I guess that would be listen to this space. And that's not really any weirder than watch this space. So listen to this space. Okay, now to my conversation with climate scientist Michael Mann. And uh, first, you will hear us discuss the polar vortex and the catastrophe in Texas. And then we'll take a short break and we'll discuss Michael's terrific new book, The New Climate War. And I got to tell you, uh, Michael is a great explainer and uh, you really get a lot out of this one, you know, for a change. Hey, Michael, thanks for uh, joining us again. Uh, thanks. It's great to be back. We we recorded uh, the interview that people were going to hear a couple weeks ago before the uh, the event, the climate event in uh, Texas, which yeah. was horrible. And uh, I wanted you to help us understand that event in terms of climate change, especially like just the sort of counterintuitive. Uh, we think of climate change as global warming, and obviously that was not warming, but it, it also the understanding is that we're going to have more severe climate events. So, so you know, if we step back uh, and, and look at this more broadly, there's no question that climate change is leading to uh, various types of uh, more extreme weather, uh, the superstorms and wildfires and heat waves and floods, droughts that we've seen in recent years. So collectively, we can 
clearly see the impact of climate change in these more extreme events. And we're not saying climate change necessarily created those weather events, but it made them more extreme and more damaging and more deadly. Now, here we're dealing with a a very interesting area of the science. It's still sort of on the forefront of climate research. And there is still a debate, a good faith debate, a real debate between scientists about these details, unlike the fake debate about whether climate change is real or human caused or is already leading to all sorts of negative impacts. There's a legitimate debate within the scientific community about the precise connection between climate change and these sort of polar vortex events as we've come to describe them. Uh, But let me at least, you know, describe the basic underlying science here, because it's a bit counterintuitive. And yet, if you understand what's going on, it's no longer uh, quite so surprising. We are warming the polar region faster than the rest of the planet. Um, The Arctic, we're melting the sea ice. That means there's less sunlight that's reflected back to space. So the Arctic warms even faster as that ice melts. We call it a positive feedback, but it's not a good thing. It's a vicious cycle. And it means that the Arctic is warming up faster than, say, the lower 48, uh, the United States. Well, here's the thing. It's actually that contrast in temperature between the very cold Arctic and the warmer sort of subtropics and mid-latitudes. It's that temperature difference that's responsible for the jet stream and what we call the polar vortex in the first place. This very tight band of westerly winds, winds from the west that sort of help trap the cold air up in the Arctic. So as you reduce that temperature contrast, By warming the Arctic faster than the rest of the planet, you slow down the jet stream. You weaken the so-called polar vortex um, in the winter in particular. And when you weaken that polar vortex, it means that that cold air isn't so tightly bottled up in the Arctic anymore. And so you're more likely to get blobs of cold Arctic air sort of spilling out into mid-latitudes. And we saw one of those events, uh, a profound example of uh, those events in Texas uh, over the last couple weeks. Now, scientists are still debating the precise connections here. And there are scientists who are not yet convinced that we can see a clear signal in the increased frequency of these events. Um, It's clear in the data that they are happening more frequently. Some scientists aren't convinced yet that there's really a long-term trend there. So, you know, that's a legitimate debate. But if I had to take sides in it, I'm fairly compelled by the studies that argue that there is an increase in the incidence of these events, and that is related to these basic mechanisms I just described. Here's the other thing about that. It doesn't mean we're getting record cold because the planet's warmer. And so the Arctic is warmer. And when you get one of those cold air outbreaks from the Arctic, that cold air isn't quite as cold as it was, say, a century ago. So what we're seeing here, it isn't record cold. It's sort of old-fashioned 1960s, 1970s cold, and that's become really rare because of the warming of the planet. And so if this mechanism really is related to human-caused climate change, it means that we might continue to see these pretty cold air outbreaks more frequently than we might expect, even as the planet continues to warm up. We are seeing records for all-time warmth. We set the all-time record hottest temperature ever recorded reliably on the face of the planet this last summer in Death Valley, California. So we are seeing record heat. 
we're not seeing record cold, but we're seeing more of that unusual cold than you might expect in a warming planet. And it might relate to this mechanism, this polar vortex mechanism. I know, for example, when you, when you say it, it's warming more toward poles, or at least North Pole yeah, in the Arctic, I, I know, for example, that Alaska is seeing a lot of melting and they're actually moving villages, right? Yeah, yeah. Because the permafrost is, is melting? Yeah, I mean, so there are a number of things that are going on there. One of them is just that Arctic amplification that I talked about. You melt away ice, the uh, surface absorbs more sunlight, so it warms up more. And so we're seeing that in Alaska. We're seeing Alaska warm faster than any other state. Um, and some of that is just due to this really basic mechanism we call Arctic amplification. The polar region just warms more because of the melting of that ice. Now, on top of that, though, at a time when they saw this extreme cold down in Texas, it was actually quite warm up in Alaska. It was warmer in Alaska than it was in southern Texas. And to some extent, it's sort of a what goes up must come down phenomenon, which is to say, if you cause the jet stream to sort of undulate more wildly, it's going to bring some cold air much further south than it normally would. But on the flip side, it's going to bring some of that warm air from the south farther north than it normally would. Um, so you send, tend to see that balanced out. And while Texas has been experiencing this extreme cold. We've had temperatures in the 70s Fahrenheit in Beijing, China. And so that's related just to this very unusual jet stream behavior that's bringing some cold air further south than it normally would, but it's bringing some warm air further north than it normally would. And obviously what happened in Texas, the disaster that happened in Texas was that their grid was not resilient. Right. Uh, it was not hardened. And that was in large part because of climate denial. Yeah, I mean, it's because Texas politicians who don't believe in regulation wanted to keep isolated from the national uh, you know, energy grid so that when there was a shortfall, they couldn't bring in energy from other states. And that's sort of uh, tied into the sort of libertarian politics of uh, Texas Republicans. Uh, but moreover, uh, they have ignored the advice of regulators for years that have said you need to weatherize your energy infrastructure. And while, you know, folks like, you know, Abbott, their uh, Republican governor, and Ted Cruz, who was flying south uh, to escape the cold weather, while they were trying to blame it on renewable energy, uh, you know, normally... When they try to blame something, you look in the other direction because they're probably trying to distract you from what's actually going on. And where they were blaming renewable energy, the real problem was the natural gas infrastructure that they're so dependent on. Um, there was a shortfall of natural gas. Uh, natural gas leads froze up. So they wanted to talk about the small number of wind turbines that uh, froze up. It was maybe 10% of their wind turbines. But wind and solar, renewable energy in Texas, which is less than 25%, currently of their of their energy you know makeup the renewable energy actually met its commitments it was the fossil fuel uh, energy that collapsed and again it's because of these anti-regulatory practices um, and it's because they haven't created a more resilient energy grid and part of that resilience is making sure you have uh, an increasingly large contingent from renewable sources from diverse sources solar wind geothermal etc so when you look back what's ironic while you know republicans in texas were trying to blame uh, aoc and the green new deal through some sort of time travel i remember 
when that, that I, passed. Yeah, through some time travel scenario that I'm not quite comprehending. It, it was an e- effort at distraction. What they didn't want you to know was that this was a failure in fossil fuel infrastructure and yet another reason that we want to be moving more dramatically in the direction of renewable energy. And I think some Texans are figuring that out. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thanks. Uh, th- this is very helpful. And then th- the rest of the interview is uh, is amazing. So everybody uh, <laughs> stay tuned. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Michael Mann uh, joins us uh, for his second time. Uh, Michael, welcome back. Uh, I think this qualifies you for an Al Franken podcast mug. Oh, that I'm looking forward to that. I need a mug. You do? Everybody needs a mug now and then. Uh, well, everyone needs um, several mugs, but okay. I'd suggest you get even another one <laughs> after you get mine. Anyway, uh, I've billed, uh, last time Michael was on, uh, I, I, I said you were the Meryl Streep of a climate <laughs> scientist because you seem to just attract awards. And, and you don't deny that, do you? It's just I am not a denier. No, it's the deniers who actually um, come after me. See, that was a, a wordplay there. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> anyway, you got, uh, you got a Nobel, the IPCC, the uh, Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change. You're part of that uh, when they got the Nobel, right? Uh, yes, it, it was uh, years ago now, back when we thought that we had really turned the corner and it's been more than 10 years, and we're still here waiting for meaningful action. Yeah, you thought that would have convinced everybody, wouldn't you? You're a professor at uh, Penn State University, and you have a new book out, The New Climate War, 
right? I do, Al. Thanks for mentioning it. Um, <laughs> indeed, <laughs> the, the new climate war, um, the fight to take back our planet. It's my latest, and it's sort of my effort to assess where we are in this battle and and and, and where we need to go from here. Yeah, I, I read it, and uh, you're kind of saying we've we've moved on, from, I guess, from the old climate war and are in the middle of the new climate war. And uh, there has been sort of a transition in the way that they're going after, you know, the deniers go after. One one form of it is, oh, it's too far gone, right? Yeah, so, <laughs> no, exactly. So why It's why like the, the people said it's not happening are now going like, oh, boy. <laughs> right. Yeah, we missed the opportunity there. It's too far gone. We might as well forget it. Yeah, no, it's amazing how quickly they made that pivot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> so the old climate war was, as you've already alluded to, this assault on uh, the basic science uh, and the scientists. It was the effort by uh, fossil fuel interests and, and those promoting their agenda, conservative media outlets who have attempted to undermine the public understanding and even acceptance of climate change as a real thing. And so uh, the difference is we can now see the impacts of climate change playing out in real time. People know something's happening. So it just isn't credible for the forces of inaction or what I call the inactivists in the book. Um, it's no longer credible for them to claim that climate change is a hoax. It's not happening, et cetera. I remember, I, I think former President Trump said it was a hoax, though. Yes, uh, Chinese hoax. He was very specific about the type of hoax. And it's important to be specific. But no, in all seriousness, you know, we've moved on now uh, with, you know, the exception of certain twice impeached presidents. Um, really, you see very little of outright denial uh, anymore. Instead, what you see are these new tactics. And you alluded to one doom and despair mongering, right? Um, <laughs> hey, if it's too late to do anything about the problem, then why act? It leads us down the same path of inaction. And as I like to say, the inactivists, they don't care about the path you take. They just care about the destination, whether it's denial of even the reality of climate change or the belief that it's too late to do anything about it, it leads us to that same place of inaction and disengagement. And that's what they want. Um, as long as we remain addicted to fossil fuels, they continue to make billions of dollar profits. To frame this, let's go back to the old climate war, the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know I miss them. No, uh, yeah. I remember uh, the climate gate. I, I want you to describe that because you were caught up in that a little bit. Right. And what I remember is, what was it, Anglican, East Anglican University, or what was it? It wasn't the Anglican Church. They had nothing to do with it. it, it no, but it was the University of East Anglia, uh, which is a okay. university Anglia. in the UK. Um, and hackers, you know, we now think it was probably state-sponsored because of the sophistication uh, of, of the effort. But um, uh, hackers broke into this server in the UK that housed thousands of emails between various uh, climate scientists, including myself. And those emails were combed through and the critics looked for individual words or phrases they could take out of context to claim, look, these scientists have admitted it's a hoax and created this massive disinformation campaign in the lead up to the 2009 Copenhagen summit. And it literally right. did sort of hijack that very important moment. 
That's right. And I remember one of the words they took out of contests, I think, was trick. It was one scientist to another saying, I have this trick where you can do this. And it wasn't like, I'm tricking people into <laughs> believing right. there's climate change. Right. It was like a, what was that trick? Right. That's, that's exactly the kind, of, I like to get in the specific of taking things out of context, because they're always fascinating to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And right, a trick is, is a great word, right, for the uh, for the critics, because to an unknowing public, it sounds like, oh, look, these scientists, they're playing a trick on you. See, we told you all along. When in fact, the boring reality is that uh, scientists and mathematicians use that term, uh, a, a clever trick, to denote a way of solving a, a vexing problem, um, a clever way to, to, to solve some, some problem. And so, like a mathematical problem. Yeah. You, you encounter, <laughs> you, well, yeah. I mean, it, here's, here's the trick to solving that problem. You take the derivative first. You know, if you want me to get geeky on you, there would be an example. Um, you integrate, you know, uh, uh, around the complex plane. I mean, that's sort of the the way scientists talk. Here's the trick to solving that problem. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I imagine these are a little bit more sophisticated. Now, Jim Enhoff, so from Oklahoma. Yeah. I don't know how much he's actually how aboard the new climate war yeah. he is. He feels a little like an old warrior. <laughs> yes, he's still, he's like that. Remember that uh, Japanese warrior who was found still fighting World War II? So you're <laughs> that sort of James Inhofe now. He's yeah. in a little cave yeah. Yeah. In, in Oklahoma. <laughs> Actually, it's a pond It's a or a lake um, because he got sick. Uh, and, I, and I'm sorry, this is a digression, but I have to tell this story. He had been invited to give the annual address at the Heartland Institute Climate uh, conference a few years ago. Heartland Institute, fossil fuel industry funded front group that, uh, you know, is committed to the idea that climate change is a hoax. And uh, he was their keynote speaker, but he had to cancel out at the last minute because he had gotten sick swimming in a lake back in Oklahoma that was suffering from an algal bloom due to the unprecedented <laughs> heat and drought that Oklahoma was experiencing that summer. So you can't make this stuff up. And yet... He didn't get the irony. Uh, well, I'm no, betting. I don't think so. Here, here's a couple in-off things. Uh, first of all, remember the snowball. Uh, yes. Um, okay, so his proof uh, that uh, there was no climate change is that it snowed. Right, yeah. right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In Washington. <laughs> well, we scientists have an explanation for that. Um, it's called winter. You know, you can say in November in North America – the world's getting colder, right. I predict, in November, as it always happens. Right. It's also like, you know, uh, the weatherman, you say, and uh, later tonight it'll get dark. Right. That would happen. Anyway, so Inhofe, <laughs> it snows, and he bring and he makes a snowball. I don't dislike him as a person as much as I dislike many uh, <laughs> my former colleagues. No, you know, I, I have the impression that he's probably, you know, a very likable grandfather or uncle or I, I, I see yeah, what, in an odd, know, odd way. If you could somehow divorce him from the awful political views that he has, he seems like he could possibly be uh, a nice guy. So, okay, so it snows out in Washington, right? So we have, you remember, you remember that? And, and he comes to the floor and he, and he has a snowball. And that's his proof that there's no global warming because it snowed in the winter. So now 
he's kind of a, a guy is easy to get along with. So I go to him, uh, Jim, I'd like to do something. And this is what I'd like to do. I'd like to make my own snowball and go to my desk and say, uh, well, uh, you know, Jim Enhoff, he, he, he came here and made a snowball and said that was because it snowed here. And he said that was proof there's a global warming. Well, it's not proof at all. And I explain that. And then I want to turn and throw the snowball as hard as I can in the direction of your desk. And I want to uh, coordinate this with the C-SPAN cameras. And you wear glasses. And I want your glasses all cockeyed <laughs> and your, the side of your face <laughs> full of snow. And he went, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he, he understood the joke and just he didn't want to do it. Hey, I guess I can't blame him. Yeah. And then here's the other one. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you know uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, of, of course. And Sheldon would do these uh, regular floor speeches on climate. So one night, Sheldon decided we're going to all the the uh, the Democratic caucus, we're all going to do or almost all of us are going to do like an all nighter doing climate speeches. Yeah. OK, so uh, Inhofe insisted he wanted to be in it. He wanted to counter it. Right. So he was the only Republican who bothered to do that, but he wanted to do it. Yeah. So he's out in this hallway that's right off the floor and he's working on it. I see him working on it. And I said, uh. Uh, Jim, um, have you uh, gotten rid of all the discredited studies? <laughs> <laughs> and he looked up at me like, and I know what you're saying. <laughs> he kind of had to acknowledge, yeah, yeah, a lot of the <laughs> stuff I've cited has been discredited, but no. I, mean, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I like your your Jim Inhofe. It's a uh... well, I don't. I, I do a lot of my former colleagues, but I, 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 that was just he's kind of an older gruff guy. But yeah, he, no, he's he, he's yeah. not gr that gruff. No, and in many, in many other respects, as you said, um, he's worked with uh, across the aisle with Democrats on certain issues. Um, he he can be very amiable, but you know, for whatever reason, maybe it has to do with the fact that he comes from uh, oil and gas, <laughs> one of the biggest <laughs> oil Big. and gas fossil fuel states, Oklahoma. Oh, you know, they're terrible. They're terrible. Pruitt. Um, yeah, right. Exactly. There. Oh, yep. he was, <laughs> yep. Wow. I mean, they're really bad. And he's terrible, terrible yeah. on this issue. Yeah. And, of course, what what we're talking about, that, that climate gate thing, he was just, man, he would talk about that all the time on the floor. Oh, I want to ask you about Cruz, <laughs> speaking ah. of. See, now there's a guy I hate. <laughs> okay? Like, I don't hate him off. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But uh, Cruz... Because uh, Biden, uh, you know, immediately, bam, as he said, he would do, rejoin Paris. You know what I'm about to say. He said that Biden cares more about what the people of Paris think <laughs> right. than the people of Pittsburgh. Right. Thinking, I think, does Cruz think they're called the Paris Accords because the people of Paris voted on them? Right. In the same way that, you know, the Montreal <laughs> Protocol um, to, to, you know, deal with the ozone depletion problem was because Montreal alone was uh, responsible for the ozone depletion. <laughs> now, I mean, it's, you know, the, uh, the, the Treaty of Versailles was, um, you know, uh, about... Uh, it was the people of Versailles. The people of Versailles. <laughs> just the people <laughs> decided <I> mean, <laughs> France and Germany, you which know, was unfair to Germany. That's why it turned out so bad. So the, there, are two, there are two possibilities there, right? <laughs> for the Germans. There are two possibilities. One is that 
Ted Cruz, um, who was actually a championship debater when he was at Princeton um, as a Princeton degree, that Ted Cruz somehow has no understanding of you know how treaties, international treaties work. Or number two, he thinks that most of his followers and promoters, um, his base, might actually uh, fall victim to that sort of uh, you know misleading framing. Um, I'm guessing. I'm going to pick number two, Michael. <laughs> ding 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 ding. You're right. He thinks his yep. his uh, people are stupid. Well, and it, it tells right. you something <laughs> about his lack of respect for you know the people who presumably comprise his base. He has a lot of lack of respect for a lot of things. We're going to take a break for a moment. We'll be right back. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, let's. We've had a good time talking about the old one. Yeah. So let's talk about the new climate war. So basically, what you're saying is it's just untenable now, right? You can't deny it, right? It's, we. You know, we've all witnessed the the wildfires out west, the unprecedented hurricane season that we just went through. Um, the scenes, you know, on our television screens, climate change is now unfolding in real time before us. And so, you know, who are you going to believe? Some uh, fossil fuel lobbyist or front group or your own two eyes? And and I think that they now recognize that, and so they've moved on and they've changed their approach. They've changed their talking points because in the end. Again, they don't care about why we don't, you know, act on climate. They just want to make sure that we don't act on climate. Okay, so what are the new uh, what are the new techniques in the new climate war that they're taking? So there is deflection. You know, it's not we don't need policies. We don't need carbon pricing. We don't need subsidies for renewable energy. We don't need policies that will um, you know, defund uh, the additional fossil fuel infrastructure. We don't need to get rid of subsidies for the fossil fuel industry. We don't need to <laughs> yeah. do any of these systemic things uh, right. because it's just about you and me being better human beings um, and being more responsible in our daily behavior. You know, what's so- Yes. Yeah. I mean, yes. Well, I'll tell you something. John Kerry's a hypocrite. <laughs> right. He flies on a private jet. Sean Hannity said, who flies on private jets all the time. Well, that's a twofer, Ad, uh, Al. That's a twofer. Okay. Because first of all, it deflects attention away from the need for systemic solutions and makes it seem like, oh, it's just about individual behavior. And at the same time, it discredits are, you know, leading climate advocates, right? It tars them as hypocrites and makes them, you know, at least to some segment of the population, less credible 
uh, spokespeople. And so it really accomplishes several tasks at the same time. Um, and so these are actually several different of the tactics of the sort of inactivists, the climate inactivists, several tactics sort of coming together in that case. I watched a segment on Hannity that night because I knew he would do that. Yeah. And I'm just taking a renewed interest in in uh, the two different uh, universes of information that Americans get. So I've, I've uh, done it again. I've gone starting to watch that stuff. And he was doing like, you know, the United States, we've reduced our uh, carbon footprint. But the last few years, China hasn't. Right. Well, no, they haven't because Trump dropped out of the Paris Accord. They were doing it before, right? Yeah, well, it's even worse than that. China <laughs> has actually been going beyond uh, their commitments under the Paris Agreement. They they were literally decommissioning uh, coal-fired power plants. Um, and so, first of all, actually, they were doing more than we were. And second of all, what is true is that we've seen them back off a little bit. I mean, they were really sort of full bore you know, moving in that direction. And then when Trump, you know, declared that he would withdraw, unilaterally withdraw from the Paris Accord, making the U.S. the only country in the world to withdraw from Paris. That's right. At one point, there were two countries who hadn't signed on to the Paris Accord, and I think they were Nicaragua and, uh, believe it or not, Syria. Syria, that's, that's right. That's <laughs> and, right. Syria was in has been in the middle of a lot of stuff, and then and Nicaragua felt that the accords didn't go far enough. <laughs> exactly, and so those are the two other those are the two countries, and we were in it. We were in it, right? And then when Trump left it, Syria and Nicaragua jumped in. <laughs> right, exactly. So you know we were looking to Nicaragua and Syria for leadership on climate at that point as a country. Uh, we were the only country. At that point, not in the Paris Agreement, and uh, that you know we're one of the two largest emitters on the planet, the largest per capita emitter. So on carbon, you know, pollution per person basis, the United States leads, but uh, China's got more people, and so they have greater aggregate uh, carbon emissions. Well, that's because we're so affluent, and and let me and we have such economic development and. That's another thing we brought up last time you were on. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about, you were talking about the emerging economies, the developing world. And I said to you at that point, well, uh, what can we do to stop them from developing? <laughs> right. And you took a, a there was a long pause because <laughs> you thought that's, I was actually, I just wanted <laughs> developing nations just to stay underdeveloped, but I, I it was a joke. <laughs> I, I don't think so, Al. I think you were serious. <laughs> anyway, so and yeah. but what the whole the answer to that is we need them to leapfrog uh fossil fuels and go to renewables uh in their expansion of their economies. Right. I mean that's, I think you you were of the uh you know uh, maybe a little older uh, generationally than than I am. Uh you might have encountered slide rules very early on in your education is that do you did you ever uh, you, Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, you know, we don't require high school kids today to learn how to use a slide rule before we let them use a calculator or a computer. We leapfrog. <laughs> I think that's I think that's a mistake. <laughs> well, actually, you know, um, you, you can learn something from using a slide rule. My, my good friend. OK, Bill you Nye know what is a, is a slide rule geek, for example. I but know. Yes. But can you imagine if. Al and Michael Mann spent a lot of time on the merits of slide <laughs> Right. <laughs> That'll bring in a lot of listeners. 
Well, there's a lot of former, you know, MIT graduates around my age. You're right. Go, damn right. <laughs> damn right. Damn right. We should make those kids learn how to use slide. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. I can see that. Well, but... I remember when every guy in Kresge <laughs> Hall had a slide rule. Yeah, and thankfully, the world of science is <laughs> has evolved. changed. It's much more diverse today, um, and that's that's a great thing. But you know what? It's also the case that we can leapfrog you know, past the outdated technology um, that we used to, you know, that was part of our, you know, that was essential, right? And of course, we need to do that. And right. the point is, is that we're not adding any coal-fired plants. It's ridiculous to, you know, we're decommissioning coal-fired plants right and left until there will be none, right? Well, that's right. I mean, and this is a really interesting point, uh, when, uh, for example, some people have um, given Biden a hard time for not banning uh, fracking, for example, and mm -hmm. Biden, you know, instead favors policies that will, will very much move us in that direction, that'll move us away from natural gas and fossil fuels. And so it's a different not, not on public lands, right? First of all, it, it, and has banned um, additional fossil fuel, uh, you know, development on, uh, on public lands and, and leases, uh, ending uh, the government leases on public lands. Um, so all of that, yeah, moves us in the direction that we need to go. Um, and, you know, isn't quite as draconian as, say, suddenly saying we're banning this practice. And the example I like to use is coal, right? Because coal has undergone a death spiral over the last four years. Is that because of Donald Trump's war on coal? Um, well, and he promised to bring coal back, right? But he couldn't. Uh, because the reality is because that it's ridiculous coal <laughs> coal coal and, and you and i have a a little bit i don't know if it's a disagreement because i'm a, more agnostic on this yeah because uh, i had uh secretary moniz former secretary moniz energy secretary moniz on right and he does believe that natural gas is a transition fuel and you don't so that that's a disagreement and his argument of course is that it displaces coal. So, like, if you have all your generation is wind and solar and you have a gas-fired plant when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining to provide the electricity you need, then you have it on. And then when the wind starts blowing and the sun is shining, then you, boom, you turn it off. That You can do that. With a coal plant, though, you just have to keep it burning. And that's much, much more inefficient. Right. No, and we know he's right, you know, in, in that debate because he's got better hair. But the reality is that, you know, that is not um, actually, uh, I, I think, <laughs> uh, a, 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 a winning argument uh, for natural gas because... It's, well, let, let me hear it because... Yeah. Um, you know that argument, so yeah. tell me what's the counter to that argument. And 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 when you're fracking, you're getting oil too, right? Always, or or you sometimes just getting gas. Um, I, I think it's yeah. It depends on the particular um, you know deposits that you're you're dealing with. Um, and but it's a mix because that's that's what's down there. It's a mix of different types of you know fossilized carbon, and, and under certain pressures and temperatures, it's oil, petroleum under certain 
temperatures and pressures, it's, you know, methane gas, um, and natural gas is largely methane. Um, and under certain pressures and temperatures, it gives you coal. And all of that stuff is fossil fuels. All of that stuff is carbon that was buried beneath the surface of the planet for millions of years. And we're suddenly putting it back into the atmosphere. And that's the problem. So as I have said in the past, you know, a fossil fuel cannot be the answer to a problem created by fossil fuels. And so the bottom line is, well, yeah, maybe you can... Well, that's catchy, but it doesn't answer Moniz's postulation. Yeah, well, you know, (laughs) where I... Just giving you And and Moniz has been (laughs) criticized, frankly, for having some ties... Uh, you know, to some fossil fuel. Well, yes, he, the Southern uh, Company, which is a big utility down there, and I told him, yeah. I've told you this, uh, we, we, uh, we talk on the phone every once in a while, yeah. and I love Moniz, I really do. Uh, but well, Like I said, he's got amazing hair. You, you have to give He does. He, he, yeah. uh, he, he's got the best hair of that administration, <laughs> Clearly. But uh, I gave him a little shit. I said, so you're working for the man, <laughs> when when he talked about working uh, as a consultant for a Southern Company, and he went, or the woman, <laughs> and and I realized that when because he's a little bit older than me even I think uh, so that generation knew you're working for the man right <laughs> and but right. he must have been studying nuclear physics at that time right probably at MI, at MIT sure at MIT with a slide rule. Sure. <laughs> well, yeah. And, you know, and, and but, you know, back to the basic, uh, you know, issue here. Um, the, OK, I know we do. We have to we, we, we do have to get to the, you know, the crux of the, you know, my listeners, they write in. I love the digressions. <laughs> no, I mean, I could digress. No, they don't. All day they don't. Long. Let's you, get you know to that. Yeah. Um, but just to just you know, the the bottom line is that look, uh, you know, you, you might be able to try to argue that natural gas is better than coal. Although one of the issues is that um, there's a lot of methane that is released into the atmosphere, fugitive methane, and that's and then that's worse than CO two. It is, but it's got different lifetimes, so it gets pretty complicated. But the bottom that's complicated. line in the short it, term, it's worse, but it yeah, in the short term, you know, so it, it depends on the time scale you're looking at, and it, it gets complicated. But the bottom, what's not complicated is that. It's, you know, even if it is marginally better from a carbon footprint standpoint than coal, uh, it's certainly much worse than renewable energy. And so the problem is you're potentially crowding out investment in a real solution, right? In a world with finite resources, with finite expenditures uh, that we have on energy, if you're putting money into development of natural gas, that's money that's not going into renewable energy and renewable energy is the real solution and it, it, it puts no carbon in the atmosphere. And so my view is that um, actually it uh, is potentially as harmful in the long run as coal. And uh, even if it's marginally better, it's a lot worse than renewable energy. You know what I think I should sponsor is a debate on this topic between you and Moniz because this would attract a huge, huge crowd. Uh, let's do it. Let's do it. Steel cage. Okay. We'll do it in a steel cage, maybe. We'll do it at Penn State. For okay. Your, like, we'll do it in the stadium. So it'll that, be a home game for fun. me. That sounds good. Let's do it. Let's do yeah, it. Yeah. The thing that's really bugging me, yeah. uh, and I think we need to point to all the time, is sea level rising and the, the ice caps breaking off and melting and 
sea level. Because if you argue with someone about a climate and if you just look at what will happen, where does Miami, what happens to Miami? What happens to Norfolk? First of all, the, the reality of this is that even at that point, right, as, you know, sea level is encroaching, the same individuals who are blaming uh, these, you know, extreme events that we're seeing, uh, dismissing them as weather, will be dismissing that as weather too. You know, as bubbles come out of their mouth, as the water level, you know, moves above their heads, they'll still be dismissing it. Uh, the weather, the climate has always changed. Right. And, and, and you know, denial, <laughs> there'll be... Miami wasn't meant to be here. Right. That long. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, just look at the Cretaceous. It wasn't there then. Um, <laughs> it's, right, it's and, you know, and, and, and that's a relevant point because, yeah, there were some big changes that happened over the last hundred million years because of natural <laughs> yeah. changes in carbon dioxide concentrations. The problem is that we are creating the same amount of change, not in a hundred million years, but in a hundred years, a million times faster. You know, th that rate of change uh, likely exceeds our adaptive capacity or the adaptive capacity of uh, other living things. And so it's not the the magnitude of the change as much as it is the rate of change that we have to deal with, especially when you've got nearly 8 billion people um, on a finite planet with finite food and water and space and a civilization that is highly dependent on the stability of that environment. And then you, and then you suddenly uh, change that environment in an unprecedented uh, matter. Obviously, that's what the threat is. So, you know, Extreme weather events, we can say that, you know, not that, hey, th these events, you know, th this hurricane wouldn't have happened or, you know, this wildfire wouldn't have happened. In many cases, sure, those weather events might have still happened if we hadn't warmed up the planet, but they wouldn't have been as bad. We wouldn't have had the unprecedented wildfires and floods and heat waves and superstorms that we've seen in recent years, um, if not for the human impact on our planet. So, that's really the point. And sea level rise is another aspect of this problem where it's actually adding to the devastation done by these tropical storms and hurricanes because they're riding on a higher tide now. And you take New York City, that uh, 13 foot storm surge with Sandy, with uh, Superstorm Sandy back in 2012, that would have been a 12 foot storm surge without sea level rise. Doesn't sound like a big difference that one foot, but it meant 25 more square miles of flooding um, in the New York City metro area, it meant several billion more dollars of damage. And so if that's one foot, imagine five or six feet, because that's where we're headed. If we don't do anything, by the end of this century, we could be looking at five, six feet or more. And the history of the science, you know, people say, oh, well, there's uncertainty. Uh, why should we listen to the scientists when there's uncertainty? As we have refined our understanding and our models and put more processes that we know are important um, when it comes to ice sheet dynamics, for example, into the models, inevitably, we have been finding that sea level rise is likely to be greater and happen more rapidly than our models suggested just, say, a decade ago. So uncertainty is not our friend here. It's cutting against us when it comes to problems like sea level rise. It really is a problem. I mean, uh, right now, uh, we're, we're seeing the problems in, in places like Norfolk, where there's a, a Navy base that's basically now under sea level. I, I mean, the Defense Department put climate change, I remember during the Obama administration, as our number one national security threat. And, and part of that is 
climate migration. When certain areas stop being, you can't grow food in an area because it's so dry, those people are moving, right? Or if uh, Bangladesh becomes flooded, part of the reason Syria happened was drought, right? No, exactly. I was going to come back to Syria. You know, this example, we talked about Syria earlier. Classic example of where an unprecedented drought, and when I say unprecedented, the tree ring people can only go back 900 years. And they say, as far back as they can go, this drought, the drought that uh, Syria experienced over the last decade, was the worst drought on record. So it was an unprecedented drought that forced rural farmers into cities like Aleppo, where they were now uh, competing for food and water and space with other people. That creates conflict. Conflict creates an environment where terrorist organizations are able to recruit very effectively. And that it was the environment in which ISIS was able to you know, become the, 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 the threat that they ultimately became. And, and, and national security, you know, have to trust me, you can listen to what, you know, the Pentagon has said, you can listen to what four-star generals, the head of the Pacific Naval Command, um, all on record, climate change is a threat multiplier. It takes these existing tensions because there's competition for resources, food and water and space. You have more people competing for less of that stuff, you're going to have more competition, you're going to have more conflict, um, and you're going to have a national security nightmare. And and that's, you know, that's where we are. And that's one of the things that I think has sort of changed the conversation, because this used to be lo- looked at as sort of a, a tree hugging, you know, problem for environmentalists. And no, I mean, you know, we've got the national security community here in the United States telling us that uh, this is the greatest long term security threat that we face. Exactly. Now, let's talk about solutions because that's what we do here on the Alfreckin podcast. We don't oh, is that what you do? talk okay. about problems and depress people. We talk about uh, solutions yeah. that will solve everything. A carbon tax. Let me ask you about a carbon tax. Are there countries that have carbon taxes now? Uh, there, there are. Uh, Canada has a national carbon pricing system and the individual provinces, it's up to them as to how to design that system. But in in most cases, it amounts to a carbon tax. And here's the thing for the critics of uh, the carbon tax. First of all, the inactivists, fossil fuel interests, uh, they don't want to see a carbon tax because it hurts their bottom line. It, it, it decreases their profits, but it levels the playing field. That's why we need a price on carbon because carbon pollution is doing damage to the planet and that's not taken into account in the marketplace unless there's a price signal, unless that damage is represented in the price that it costs to, uh, to, to purchase It degrades and, and burn. the commons. Yeah. So a carbon tax is one of the ways of doing that. Carbon pricing can be done in lots of different ways. It can be done with a carbon tax. It can be done with a cap and trade system like uh, we used for acid rain, the acid rain problem. And by the way, that cap and trade system was put forward under the George H.W. Bush um, administration by uh, their uh, EPA administrator, uh, William K. Riley, who gave birth to uh, the, the, the idea of cap and trade, tradable emissions permits as a way to solve an environmental problem. So that, that was a Republican idea. You could put a price in those and you bought yeah. permits. 
there were permits to pollute and there were a finite number of them. So that would keep a cap on how much pollution could be produced. And you would allow um, industry to buy and sell those permits. Uh, the proponents would argue that that's a very market efficient way of um, achieving that cap of allowing the, the market to sort out, you know, who's in the best position to reduce their uh, emissions. And so it, it has the advantage of sort of um, taking advantage of the low-hanging fruit um, the, where there's the greatest opportunity to reduce emissions, you do that first and, 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 and the, the system um, allows for that. Uh, but others argue for a, a carbon tax. Uh, people like Paul Krugman have said, look, you know, either these can work. It's just a matter of politics as to which we go with. Um, but these are all ways of, you know, pricing carbon. And that's one of the sort of tools in the toolbox. We need all the tools that we have. We need subsidies for renewable energy. We need to prevent, um, you know, additional new uh, fossil fuel infrastructure, no more pipelines, no more, uh, you know, mountaintop removal coal mines. Um, we've got to stop the additional infrastructure. Well, they were removing unnecessary mountaintops very often. Well, right. I mean, some of them, you know, look worse than others. I mean, it's, but, you know, we're joking, but I mean, one of the tragedies here is that, um, you know, what we call the environmental externality. Here, we're just talking about the carbon pollution, but look at all the other things that happen. When you blow up the top of a mountain, you ruin, um, you know, precious ecosystems, uh, you kill, you know, off all sorts of uh, living things, animals, um, you destroy uh, you know, in some cases, you you threaten the extinction of species with that sort of behavior. Yes, no, I'm a, I am actually against. Uh, oh, okay. That. Glad you clarified that because I wasn't yeah. sure. Okay. Now, now let, let a carbon tax. Now, the way, and I'm for have been for a carbon tax, and the idea that people should understand is that you want it to be sort of revenue neutral in the sense that people get back, Americans would get back the money from. That's right. That's right. From the carbon tax. How, how, does, how would that work exactly? Explain it. Yeah. So for example, you've got uh, the Assistance Climate Lobby, which is sort of a bipartisan organization that uh, advocates for um, a fee and dividend uh, system that preferentially, you know, that returns revenue to the people, right? So it's revenue neutral, which actually appeals to some conservatives. Uh, in fact, uh, even Grover Norquist, the sort of anti-tax uh, um, crusader, at one point, said that, you know, he could see supporting potentially something like a revenue neutral carbon tax where you don't increase the overall taxation on the American people because while you have a carbon tax, you return the revenue to the people or you offset by reducing other taxes like income taxes, right? That's a political debate. I mean, how we go about doing that. But what's important in, in sort of what, what we were getting at uh, a little earlier in other countries that have implemented a carbon tax, uh, Canada, Australia, which had a very uh, effective, uh, wasn't really, you know, it wasn't called a carbon tax. It was an emissions trading scheme, but the same idea. Um, there was a, a price on carbon and the revenue that the government took in was returned to the people and it was returned progressively. So actually lower income households and individuals mm -hmm. got more and actually benefited. So for those, you know, like the Murdoch media that attacked and, and the uh, conservative government that ultimately was able to get rid of the carbon tax uh, disingenuously argued that it was going to raise prices and hurt low-income people. It did just the opposite because of the way that the revenue was returned progressively. And so whether a carbon tax ends up being regressive or progressive depends on what you do with the revenue. And that's an important point because there are some environmentalists, uh, climate advocates 
who um, have come out in recent years against a carbon tax because they think that it is inconsistent with sort of a just transition, that it will hurt frontline communities. That absolutely doesn't have to be the case. It depends on what you decide to do with the revenue. Now, what do you, what do you mean? Frontline communities or are... uh, low-income uh, communities and uh, poor uh, areas? Um, you know, for, for example, um, you know, there's a tendency for people, lower-income people, live in environmentally uh, degraded areas, and so uh, they're the most hurt by this problem, and uh, they're the most hurt by pollution in general and by climate change because they have the least resilience, the least um, capacity least resources to deal with the impacts of climate change. So there's a, a strong, very important sort of social justice component to this problem. And I do think that that has to be part of the political conversation as we go forward. You know, and then this cuts a lot of different ways, but talking about the people who will lose jobs in those uh, fossil fuel industries and how do you don't leave suddenly a whole bunch of people not working and how you make that transition or the smartest way to make that transition in a way that uh, is the least disruptive. And uh, there must be a lot of thinking done about that. Yeah, well, there is. And it's been an important part of the conversation. One of the things that I really like about the the Biden plan, the various executive actions that he announced a couple of weeks ago, is that it specifically addresses that issue. Stranded. Is is that the words like stranded well, workers or something like that? Yeah. And sometimes we talk about stranded assets, like the, the fossil fuels buried in the ground that we don't want fossil fuel companies to actually um, monetize. If they monetize them, then that means additional carbon pollution into the atmosphere. So that carbon needs to remain stranded. So we should really pay the fossil fuel companies more money to not do that. <laughs> well, you joke, but I mean <laughs> I know. <laughs> you joke, but one of the one of one of the components of a transition plan for fossil fuel communities is that you do provide resources to those communities. Look, the fossil fuel companies have done really well. They've made record profits. The people who've been hurt are the fossil fuel workers, the coal workers, everybody else who not only have seen, you know, relatively uh uh, little income for for the hard work that they do, but have suffered the health consequences, black lung, um, in, in working in those uh, dangerous environments. Uh, there were a, a, a relatively small number of individuals who head up these coal companies who were making huge profits. And the people down below, the workers, see relatively little of that money and they bear all the health health consequences of, of being down there working in those mines and, and, and losing their lives in, in some cases because of the cost-cutting measures taken by the coal barons in their effort to maximize their corporate profits. And so there's a so what we have to do is make sure that the victims in all this, which are the, the communities and the people, coal families um, and their children and their families, uh, that we provide a transition plan. We help them adjust to this necessary transition. And the Biden plan does that. It, it specifically provides resources to go into these communities, do things like turn brownfields into sort of new uh, uh, sort of uh, economic hubs. Um, it provides jobs uh, to people to actually clean up the degradation, um, to address the degradation, to clean up the, uh, the the environmental damage that was done over the years um, by fossil fuel extraction. And so 
that's and then you know let's let's face it you take something like the keystone pipeline uh, keystone xl pipeline uh, the proponents say oh if you know if biden blocks this pipeline we're going to lose jobs there are maybe 200 to 300 permanent jobs in all of the right. keystone xl pipeline and literally many many thousands of jobs in renewable energy because Fossil fuel uh, energy, uh, that industry is largely automated now, um, and there are far more jobs when it comes to installation of new energy infrastructure in renewable energy. Yeah, the economic transitions uh, that we need to do in order to prevent the worst consequences yeah. of, of climate change are, you know, those are going to be controversial. They're going to be, some will be more successful than others. Uh, it, it doesn't take much for people to get angry uh, about things. Um, and, yeah. you know, and, and people's livelihoods, you know, this is all very emotional stuff, obviously. And it's not easy. Now, that's right. And, and, and in my view, bad actors have actually exploited that. Um, to, to, for their own uh, agenda. Um, and, and as I said, you know, the ones who pay the price are the actual workers, the coal workers, um, and the ones who make out with uh, huge uh, corporate profits are the coal barons. So who are the, now the deniers? What, what is, how is the character of what they do changed? I mean, you did yeah. mention this, the ones that are just saying, oh, it's too, the doom, the doomsayers. They were saying it's it's too late. Uh, what are some of the other transitions in in the folks that uh, you know are are trying to prevent us from from doing what we need to do? Yeah, I mean the the other um, the the you know the other tactics that are used. Um, so division, getting us arguing with each other, um, and you see in particular, uh, you know, fossil fuel uh, companies and, and front groups have played a role in that. But you also see state actors, um, petrostate. Uh, actors like Russia, who have interfered um, in our social media uh, platforms, who have, you know, used bot armies and, and trolls uh, to try to create conflict, um, to actually try to turn uh, progressives against climate action by either promoting doom and gloom. It's too late to do anything, so don't bother. Or, you know, getting them fighting with each other over, say, lifestyle choices, right? Um, and, and that's really the sweet spot where all of these tactics come together. Because if you can get people fighting with each other over their lifestyle choices, are you vegan? Do you fly? Have, have you had children? Make it about them, you know, then you're deflecting attention. It's, it's very effective because it, once again, redirects attention away from the need for policy solutions, putting the pressure on policymakers, politicians to pass climate legislation and, 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 and you know, climate-friendly policies, takes the pressure off of them to do that if you just make it about individual behavior, like we were saying before. It's a threefer. Um, it's where three different tactics come together, okay? Because look, they're deflecting attention away from policy solutions, so they've achieved that goal. They're dividing us. It's divide and conquer. Get climate advocates fighting with each other so that don't, they don't speak with a united voice act, you know, demanding change. And they use it, as we noted earlier on in, uh, in our conversation, to discredit some of the most important messengers, right? To tar them as hypocrites like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Leo DiCaprio or Al Gore, or more recently, John Kerry, right? Make it all about his, you know, flight patterns, uh, you know, uh, and, and so you discredit him as a messenger, 
Um, you, and, and so they target some of our key messengers with that sort of uh, charges of hypocrisy, which are almost always uh, distortions in the first place, um, not accurate, not truthful. But more than anything else, they're a, a, they're, they're a distraction because we know that the, the real solutions here have to be ultimately systemic. And so that's a threefer, right? If they can accomplish that, then those are three tactics coming together, division, deflection, and you've got um, discrediting, discrediting uh, our uh, most important uh, messengers and communicators. Well, you know what? We have to learn to, to divide people with deflection and discrediting here on on right, the, the, right. the progressives. So let that be a lesson. So read the new climate war yeah. and start learning these tools. <laughs> no, it's not a how-to book, Alan. It's actually... Oh, okay. A, no, it's a, how to fight back against those tactics, in fact. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, Michael, thank you. Gee, um, this has been fun. <laughs> Thanks, Al. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, my friend. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.